0: Hello and welcome to the TIFF podcast. I'm Shamal Haroon. Public health research has made huge contributions to our understanding of population health and underpins public health practice. There is a strong emphasis on developing academic skills in the public health specialty training scheme and there are many opportunities to get involved in research. I spoke to Dr Rob Aldridge to discuss this further. So hi Rob, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Could you please introduce yourself and say a little about your background in public health?
1: Sure, hi Shamil Um, thanks very much for having me on the podcast, it's great to talk to you about this. Uh, So I'm an academic clinical lecturer and uh, public health registrar at University College London. I have a slightly unusual background in that actually my first degree was in mechanical engineering um, and I then travelled for a while because I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do before taking up a job in consultancy and eventually seeing the light and uh, realising that I wanted to study medicine and ultimately uh, public health. So I've, I've come to public health in a rather roundabout way, but hopefully it's given me some alternative skills to the typical uh, kind of route in. And, and I think they've definitely, in terms of my academic career,
0: they've definitely benefited me. Great, thanks. That's a very diverse background that you have. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we're going to talk a bit about academic training in public health. So could you say a bit more about your journey into academia sure
1: so when I went back to university to study medicine I always in the back of my mind um from from my engineering degree actually I'd 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 enjoyed the research that I'd done through that so in the back of my mind I'd <clears throat> had an interest and realized that probably longer term I wanted to do research And so when I was at medical school, the first thing I did actually was get a um, Wellcome Trust summer vacation scholarship, which put me uh, in the lab doing actually really basic science on potassium channels in cardiac myocyte cells, which I really enjoyed. It was a great experience. um, But. Uh, probably it was a good thing that I did that because I realized that lab based work um, and dealing with you know, the, the populations that had the gene defect that we were looking at on this potassium channel were, you know, there were like 100 people globally with it. And I think it was a good insight for me in terms of actually I was interested in the bigger picture, uh, which is kind of the focus of my research and what I'm doing right now. So I did that welcome trust scholarship, uh, realised that research definitely was what I wanted to do but not on the, um, the kind of that level and um, so I then applied for my foundation training jobs. I, I still hadn't really worked out that I was going to do public health <clears throat> at that point point. Um, and I applied for the academic training scheme in London and got one fortunately with uh, the virology department at the Royal Free where they were very interested in cytomegalovirus and the the research they were doing there was very much more on a population level it was about vaccine development testing vaccines and i really enjoyed it um, and really you know realized that the population health was what i was uh, going to be doing and while i was at that placement at the Royal Free, i met professor andrew hatewood um, who works at ucl <clears throat> and is interested in tuberculosis and influenza and that's really when uh, during that time, I realised that actually public health was the training route that I wanted to go down. So after my foundation training job, I um, I applied for an academic uh, clinical fellow job uh, in London on the public health scheme and, and was fortunate enough to get that and, and took up the placement with Andrew Hayward. Um, and then during that, I, I applied for a, a, a Wellcome Trust Research training scheme, to, with Andrew Hayward, and I've just finished that as of August. So that's to do a PhD. So I've just this uh this last August completed my PhD, and I'm back on the training scheme now as a as an academic clinical
0: lecturer. <clears throat> Congratulations on getting your PhD, because that's one of the major hurdles I think in in, in getting into a, a, an academic career.
1: Yeah, it certainly is, and and the funding opportunities um if you're on a training scheme, they're they're, they're still very competitive, and it's not the easiest things uh things to do i think it's a good learning experience because now i'm facing the next round of you know finding my funding from then on and i think doing it at that stage was a good uh good kind of build up to it but it's yeah there is definitely a bottleneck there and 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 a competitiveness there uh and i think there could be more we could do to support other registrars coming through the scheme that are interested in that
0: so could you say a bit more about the academic clinical fellowship scheme and how it helped you go towards your PhD? Yeah, absolutely. So, uh,
1: I think it's still the same. It's been a few years mm-hmm. since I had mine. Um, at, but at the time I took up mine and in London, it was a 25% protected academic time and then 75% uh, service public health work. Uh, and at the time, and I think this is again still the same. The academic clinical fellows spent their first year doing an MSc, which is what I did. I went to the London School after two months of being on the scheme, I did my first placement at Bromley PCT and then went to the London School to do my master's in epidemiology. Uh, And during that time, I I did uh, an MSc dissertation, and it was based on that dissertation that I thought I would, which was on tuberculosis in homeless people, uh, that that was what I wanted to focus my PhD on. So after I finished that, um, I did some service public health jobs, but had my 25% academic time as part of the ACF where I put together uh, a series of, of applications to the Wellcome MRC and NIHR to undertake a, a PhD on this topic and um, wasn't successful the first time round. I forget exactly who I wasn't successful with. I think I think the first time I applied, I didn't get a, a Wellcome or MRC and then the second time round, Wellcome um, gave me an offer for the, for the PhD. Uh, so it was a good learning experience. I learned a lot from actually from that failure. Uh, and I, like I was just alluding to earlier, I think um, that's part of the, the nature of an academic world is that sometimes you just don't, you know, you're, you're, what you're trying to do doesn't fit with the funding panels that, that, are, that are looking for sometimes quite specific um, uh, projects to fund.
0: Absolutely. And, and they are so competitive, how did being an ACF help in terms of supporting you towards, um, being awarded, uh, one of those schemes? I think it, the
1: main way it
0: helped was by
1: having this dedicated 25% time, uh, to work on the, the fellowship application and also to use that time to build up, you know, publication track records and, uh, you know, go to conferences and, uh, I think I, I think it, kind of, it came with some money, didn't uh, like a thousand pounds a year, which I was able to use to go to additional research conferences. So it was those uh, types of things, and actually also the, the the Nihr who run the scheme also have an annual training event and networking events, and and, and keep you very much in a community across all uh, specialties. And, you know, so it's not just public health focus. So I, I think. Um, it it was a combination of those things that really helped. I don't think it's the only way. I think it's still possible to uh, get these fellowships not on these schemes, you know, if you don't have an ACF, because obviously ACFs are still uh, exclusive to clinicians. um, I think, you know, I think it's possible to do it by doing an academic placement as well, but it definitely did, you know, I valued it was helpful to have that time early on in the training scheme to, to put, to focus on putting PhD applications together.
0: Great. And could you say a bit more then about what what you ended up doing with with your PhD? What was the, the topic and, and what did you find?
1: Yeah. Uh, so the, the MSE project that I did um, was on TV and homelessness. And actually, at the time, I realised that, that that was re- you know, it's a really important problem in terms of driving uh, the continuous transmission of TV in England. But actually, the the in terms of pure case numbers of tuberculosis in england it's um people not born in the uk that have the highest burden of disease and so i decided to um look at i did some research whilst i was on the MSE and look at uh, what 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 was going on in terms of screening and uh, healthcare provision for this group and actually um something that caught my interest was the screening program as migrants came into the uk uh so historically What's been what up up until 2013, what happened is that anyone coming to the UK on a visa for more than six months was screened as they came in via Heathrow, Gatwick and a couple of of other places, which I forget. But since 2005, actually, the UK has been running a pilot scheme with 15 countries and in collaboration with the International Organization for Migration whereby uh, a migrant, as part of the visa application process, is required to be screened for tuberculosis to have a chest x-ray. Um, and if that chest x-ray is negative, they're then given their medical certificate for clearance, which gives them their visa. Um, and if, if they're found to be positive, they're not given that. And essentially, the PhD that I've just completed is, is has been looking at this pre-entry screening system um, it started out with a systematic review where I looked at all the literature previously that's been published which is mainly from the US and some Canadian and Australian data and then working with the tuberculosis section at PHE I then um, took all the pilot data from the UK pre-entry screening programme. And analysed uh, analysed that pilot data, and then <clears throat> linked it to the UK tuberculosis register. So the so the second study was looking at so the first study was a systematic review. The second study was looking at what happened to migrants at the time of their screening, so before they've been given a visa. And then the third study was looking at what subsequently happened to them after they arrived in the UK, which nobody has done anywhere um, in in the globe before on a kind of national level. There's been really small studies, but um, we're just about to... Uh, we've got a, the papers just going on, undergoing review now. Uh, we've got a cohort of just over 500,000 migrants that have been screened, and we have their UK TB notification data after after they've arrived in the UK. And, and we can look at things like how much of their disease led to transmission in the community, how much of it uh, is potentially preventable, uh, if we were to look for latent tuberculosis in addition to the current focus on on active pulmonary TB, so it's a re- it's been a really exciting project, uh, and it's really nice to have um, you know ha- it's starting to have an impact on policy. The WHO has been looking at it. Um, PHE is, is using it to inform their policy. So it's been a a really nice kind of good uh, sound grounding in epidemiology, but also ha- hopefully is starting to have an impact on policy in the UK and globally.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a fantastic project. And it, it also sounds like you use quite a lot of mixed methods, um, which brings me on to my next question. What what sort of skills did you develop over the course of your PhD and also over the course of your academic training in general?
1: Yeah, so I'm now sat at an institute called the Fire Institute of Health Informatics, um, which happened. I moved there. Because my boss Andrew Hayward um, took his his team to that department um, during my PhD, and essentially this it didn't really exist a few years ago, but it really fits with the type of work that I'm doing, which is essentially in terms of the methods is around data linkage, it, which combines and uh, but then also combines <clears throat> you know traditional epidemiological studies such as you know cross-sectional and cohort studies, okay. um, but. You know, in the world of big data, so you know, uh, it, you, you don't find many cohorts historically that have been that have included five hundred thousand people within them, um, and so the you know the methods to analyse those data are slightly different, and you have to account for missing data a bit more, and develop methods for for how you follow up individuals. So a lot of the methods that i i worked on uh were building on traditional epidemiological methods but also you know some new big data skills like linkage and 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 how we validate those sorts of systems
0: and how easy was it to to get the training on things like data linkage
1: uh there wasn't any <laughs> yeah so I was self taught uh so I guess this comes back to my what I was mentioning right at the beginning of the interview which is that um uh, you know in my prior degree or prior life I was an engineer and during that time, I, I developed quite a lot of coding skills. You know, there's a lot of programming that I was able to do in uh, in that degree. And I, I really went back as part of this PhD and, and, and built on that. So a lot of the program that I was doing for this linkage work was in SQL Server. It's kind of similar to Microsoft Access, which probably more people are familiar with. But uh, it's based upon the same sorts of uh, software. Uh, and... I really had to just spend time with colleagues who are experts at PHE and read books and do an online training course. I guess. So I guess. Yeah, I did do. I forgot about that. I did do an online training course, but I don't think there's much around. Um, although now, interestingly, where we're where we're based at the Far Institute, we now have just started a an MSc in data science which does combine all of these uh sorts of training you know uh, machine learning linkage um you know uh, the the sorts of skills that that are needed for these new types of uh, of epidemiological analyses in in the world of big data
0: just goes to show how advantageous it is to have that diverse background
1: yeah yeah I know at the time I was kind of you know, my parents always joked with me that at the end of my medical degree, whether I was going to go on and study law or something like that. But <laughs> but, um, but actually, I think it's I've definitely benefited from from having had spent that time doing other things. And even I think even the time that I spent as a consultant has been really useful. It it, it, um, it brings a different perspective to the way you work and the kind of um, some of the ways that you think.
0: So, so there, did any opportunities arise? From, from your from PhD, PhD and from, from the, rest the rest of your academic training?
1: Yeah, I've, I've had lots of fantastic opportunities um, throughout that. My supervisors have been very encouraging um, to, to, you know, not just spend my time doing the PhD. So I, during the PhD, I set up an MSE module, um, which is called Global Infectious Disease Epidemiology and Global Health Policy with another uh it's no longer a registrar but nigel field at the time he was an academic clinical lecturer between the two of us we set up the course and, and now run that um so we oh, just uh finished the last lecture for that course today actually uh with 50 students on it we, we, and, you know we started off with 10 and it's grown to that uh over the course of the last three years so that's been i had lots of great teaching opportunities um there and then I guess one of the other big things that that I spend quite a bit of my time doing is uh, we set up in um what's four years ago now the Lancet UK public health science conference in collaboration with the UCL and the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine in view of the fact that um they're really you know there are lots of good public health conferences but the uh, there were none that just focused purely on the research aspects of of of, of public health science. And um, so I, I was I, uh, and in discussions with Martin McKee and Richard Horton, who um, I'd met through um, actually the NHS, some of the changes that had been happening to the NHS. Off the back of those discussions, we thought that it would be good to set up a conference that focused on public health science and gave uh, the research, public health science community uh, a, a venue at which to present their research and it's in its fifth year this year and it's again it's 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 a really great uh, event i think you came to it didn't you i did yes i
0: really enjoyed it i thought it was a fantastic conference and and it's fairly unique as well as you say there aren't really any other um, conferences particularly those that are geared towards uh, registrars in public health or for academic uh,
1: absolutely and and that's been a big thing throughout the the, the since it's been started you know it was it was set up by uh myself and with the help of um a couple of other registrars <clears throat> Louise Hurst and Katie Cole and um you know the focus has always been that it's been driven by public health registrars although we've got the senior support from the Lancet and and senior academics like Martin McKee and Anne Johnson at UCL um but you know it's very much driven by us and the, on the day it's a great mixture of early career researchers and senior academics presenting and, and actually this year we're going to for the first time have um, uh, prizes for uh, early well we did do it last year but it was a bit kind of at the end and that hot whereas this year we're setting it up right from the start that we'll have prizes for early career researchers in 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 you know in hope that we can encourage even more early career researchers to come along and present their, their work and they're always really great presentations and it's a Uh, a a good day to get different discussions going and I think one of the other good things about the conference is there's so many different methods uh, presented so you get qualitative researchers you get health economists you get you know quantitative epidemiologists Um, it's a it's a good well-rounded balanced reflection of public health science that's going on in the UK
0: yeah I would totally agree with that and uh, another thing that impressed me about the conference was the rigour with which abstracts are peer-reviewed. Uh, I remember uh, a couple of med students I was supervising uh, submitted an abstract and they actually went through quite a lot of peer review before they were accepted, which is which is unusual for a conference.
1: It's very unusual, um, it's really unusual and, and, and again that's the strength of having the Lancet involved in the conference. The Lancet's really keen that uh, these abstracts do get reviewed and, and there's, a, there's a team of us that do these peer reviews uh, each year and it's actually one of the really enjoyable aspects of running. It's quite a lot of work, uh, but so I do. Um, <clears throat> the first year I did, the, we did the conference. I reviewed every single abstract, when I don't do that anymore. <laughs> <It's> too much. <laughs> uh, so we now have a bigger team of, of people, uh, senior and again early career research researchers reviewing the abstracts, and you learn a lot about um, reviewing. And I think as 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 someone that's been through. Uh, on the other side and has had their had their work reviewed you, you know it's really valuable feedback at that point as well and and i think it it shows in the ultimate quality of the research that's presented on the day
0: absolutely i encourage uh, any listeners uh who are thinking about academic training to attend the conference and, and present their work definitely as um, judges, there's going to be prizes this year <laughs> even more motivation to go but um and I'm also aware that you're involved in the Global Burden of Diseases study. I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that.
1: Yeah. So that's one of the other things that I've been able to do during the PhD that, you know, really wasn't directly related to the work that I was doing, but is linked. So <clears throat> my, my, um, the PhD is obviously focusing on understanding the, the epidemiology of tuberculosis in migrants and, um, And some of the methods that I developed, like the probabilistic linkage to allow you to to, to map health outcomes across, you know, mobile populations like this, uh, were, I thought potentially were relevant to the GBD study because most of the data used within GBD at the moment are typically uh, kind of vital statistics, so births and deaths, and then um, <clears throat> cross-sectional surveys like Health Survey for England or internationally, more commonly it's the Demographic Health Surveys. And none of those data sets really allow you to pull out people who are migrants, pull out people who are homeless, pull out alcohol alcoholics, drug users, <clears throat> those sorts of groups. Who actually have the highest burden of disease but don't get picked up? So during the PhD, I was fortunate enough to be able to take a few months out and spend time with the team in the Global Burden of Disease team in Seattle, and really get to understand the mechanics that you know of, of GBD, which is a fantastic uh, but enormously complicated study that um, is used by policymakers around the world. Um, and I I was hoping that. That I was going to come back and be able to do the analysis that I wanted, which was really creating for the first time a, a global burden of disease um, for homeless people um, and there there was we decided when I was out that there, there's a kind of quick and dirty way of doing it, but actually i'd rather do the more complex and 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 um more accurate way of doing it so I'm now um for my next round of of funding. Uh, sort of postdoctorally after i've cct that i'm looking to develop that application further but it's meant that i've i've got a good understanding of gbd and my current placement actually that i'm on so i'm with with my academic clinical lecturer job i'm half at ucl and then half at public health england in the data science team and working with them who have the responsibility of, of the gbd england study i'm working with them to do some of these these areas of work locally just in england
0: yeah, it's such a great opportunity to be involved in in such a big collaboration, and I am aware that that the GBD um, group do a course in Seattle. I think it's uh, it spans a couple of weeks. It's quite expensive, but it does uh, give an opportunity to learn about some of the mind bogglingly complex yeah. methods that they use. But uh, maybe one for the more hardcore epidemiologists.
1: Yeah, absolutely. They also have one in in Greece, and interestingly, uh, at a very nice resort in Greece uh, for two weeks over the summer. But as you say, it's quite an expensive course. I think it's about five thousand pounds. But if you're interested in, you know, uh, in in learning about the, you know, the kind of black box that is the global burden of disease study, it's the the place to go. and learn about it, and you know chris Murray who's the founder uh, and Theo voss and Alan Lopez all teach on that course so it's it's well worth um, you know if <laughs> if you can find those sorts of monies from somewhere to do it it's well worth trying to
0: yeah um, do you have any other advice uh, you'd like to share with uh, registrars who are interested in in gaining more experience in, in academia and public health yeah, I think um, you know even if you're not on an ACF
1: or a program i think uh if you're if you're if you're wanting to pursue or thinking or, or interested in finding out whether you want to pursue an academic career i would strongly recommend doing an academic placement um you know it's taking 12 months out to, to spend time in an academic department is a really you know it's a it's a training uh it's an opportunity that you don't get on many training schemes and and i would i would highly recommend it and, and having that time to, to work out and understand, you know, the, the details of how academia works, and academia is a kind of is you know very it depends on which department you go to, but it is it is quite a different um, world, and and the pace of, of of work is quite different as well. It's very much long term, you know. We also you know public health service work is is on a different uh, pace in terms of the outcomes that you're looking at, but academia is even more longer term. Um, <clears throat> so I think doing a placement and seeing the day to day reality of that is is and and is is useful to see whether you whether it is something that you're interested in um i guess that you know if you if you want to do a phd there's there's going to be a requirement to get publications and and those unless you're very lucky that's not really possible to do within a 12 months placement it, it tend to, you know tend generally tends to take a lot longer than that um but you can get things going and so i would i would highly recommend taking an academic placement and 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 but even doing a service job there are potentially opportunities to write a work up and publish it in a journal and i think that's one of the other things to do uh, at any opportunity you know there's 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 good reasons to do that for your cv but also for the wider learning i think when in public health we don't always write up some of the things that we do as much as we should do so that others can benefit from our knowledge and our resource and i think that's that's one thing that it would be good to do to see more people doing
0: absolutely and then moving on from being an acf so now you're a, a clinical lecturer um how difficult was it to to go on from being an acf to an to an acl and 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 how has that changed in terms of your your roles and responsibilities yeah i was
1: really lucky basically that um just as i was coming towards the end of my phd there was a, an acl job advertised at ucl <clears throat> um It was a good incentive, actually, because to be able to apply for it, you have to have submitted your thesis. And I hadn't been planning to submit my thesis for a couple of months. And it really, you know, in the the eight weeks when I realised, you know, the time between when they advertised the job first and the deadline, it really made me think, okay, right, I've got got to get my (laughs) shoes on. So it made me finish my thesis. So I ended up submitting my thesis three months earlier than I planned, which was great, actually, in the end, because I think you can, there's a tendency to, you know, let these things linger. And it was a good... um, it was a good spur on. It was quite hard work. <laughs>
0: um, I can imagine.
1: Definitely, um, you know, uh, did, did put some long hours in then, but um, it was, but, but really it was, a, it was just chance that the job came up at the time that I was coming towards the end of my PhD. And in terms of how it's changed things, I now have um, 50% time, a dedicated time uh, in academia, which is obviously less than what I'd been doing during the PhD, but it's still a great, you know, Opportunity, so I've been using that time to finish off the. So, although I finished submitting my thesis, I you know I hadn't published everything from it, so I've now submitted all the. So, ultimately, I'm hoping that I will get four papers out of my PhD, and um, I just submitted the last paper a a month or so ago, and so I've used the time to do that. I've I've managed to get a couple of grants um, to do further research, and then um it's bit again just by luck i've i've been doing spending my service time working with the data science team at, at public health england which was set up just as i was finishing my phd so this i think a lot of th- a lot of things managed to fall into place at the right time uh so I'm with them i'm am now working with them on uh, on uh, analysis of large data sets and and, and modeling and, and and the global burden and disease study so i've been really lucky basically
0: wow sounds like a lot of things coming together yeah absolutely um so could you could you also uh give some advice about how to strengthen the support for academic training that perhaps we could do at at a regional uh or more local level
1: yeah i think um so i think one of the big stumbling blocks in terms of you know we've, we've talked about it earlier it is is finding the getting one of those funding uh placements to do the phd and i think. I was really lucky I I was in a department where there were two people ahead of me um Charlotte Warren Gash and Laura Laura Shawcross who had were on these schemes and they were really helpful in terms of sharing knowledge about what I needed to do on these applications and uh you know the sorts of things that needed to be on there and um <clears throat> and talking about they I mean essentially they say that these applications are about the person so it's your CV Uh, about the place where you're doing it and the the reputation of that and then the project and and you know there's not in terms of your cv there's not so you know if you've not been thinking about it there's not much you can do and the place um again it's it you you have to think very carefully about where whether your research project is uh is is suited to that department is that, that the best department in england to be doing it um, but but Charlotte and Laura were really helpful in terms of sharing knowledge about that and also the the project and what you know how big it needed to be what were the kind of pitfalls of of, of you know what sort of things the, the funding bodies didn't like and I think at a kind of national or regional level we could do a better job at at sharing that sort of knowledge across registrars coming onto the scheme and um, and um, and wanting to do that so if there are any registrars listening I'd be happy to chat to them about those sorts of things but we could probably be a bit more systematic about that because i think that's one of the major hurdles is that um certainly within the cohort of people that i started with there's been a few people that have, have dropped out because of not securing funding at that stage mm. well,
0: it sounds like really good advice and it's certainly something we can try to support uh, at, at my own region um is there anything else you'd like to comment on that we haven't covered no i think um
1: well other than to say i think that um academic public health is a really uh, great opportunity it's not for everyone um but it's uh, it's it's a it's a growing field i think the me- some of the methods are going to be changing but um there's a need to there's a need for more people and more you know high quality research in this area so i think it's it's um it's definitely something that i would recommend everyone considers and even if you don't do it as a long term career I would highly recommend doing a placement because having those skills in a, in a service job afterwards is, is, is invaluable.
0: Great. I totally agree with you. And, and thanks so much for taking part in the podcast. I've learnt loads and I've really enjoyed this discussion.
1: Likewise. Thanks for
0: having me on it. Thanks very much, Rob. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and found it informative. You can hear other episodes and subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud. Many thanks for listening. Thank mm-hmm. you.